0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We'll be back in 1 John next week. But this week I'm going to do another installment in our Matthew 24 series. Remember I said at random times I'd throw in a, a teaching on Matthew 24 and we're going to work through this uh, chapter. Today we're going to look at the disciples' question to Yeshua in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24. Let's look at these first three verses. Yeshua left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, all right, so here, get the picture, they're at the temple. He's teaching. He leaves the temple. This includes the temple grounds. He's going away. His disciples, as they're going, they come to Him and they point out the buildings of the temple. Lord, look at these buildings. I mean, this is a massive structure. This is a fortress. These stones were huge. This, you know, this was the talk of all the world, this fortress, this temple in Jerusalem. So they're pointing out the buildings. He answers them and says, you see all these, the buildings, the structure, that's what he's talking about, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That would have been horrifying, that would have been shocking to them. They're like, what? There's nothing can destroy this building. That area was prone to earthquakes, and this thing was built to withstand whatever, all right? Like I said, it's a fortress, all right? So this would have shocked them. We looked at these two verses last time. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Matthew 24, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, because he's preaching it from the Mount of Olives, is by far the most explicit of the Lord's prophetic utterances regarding His second coming. This chapter, 24, all about the second coming of the Lord. Verse 3 is the most important verse in the whole chapter. If you don't understand their question, you're never going to understand the answer. You must be sure we understand this question that they are asking Him. Now, the way many deal with these questions is a good example of how our paradigms can blind us to certain truths. We all have paradigms. They come from wherever, our childhood, movies, some kind of teaching. We have this paradigm formed. This is how we see the world. And sometimes our paradigms are good, but sometimes they can blind us and we need what's called a paradigm shift. We need to make some changes. Now, if in your eschatological paradigm, in other words, how you view the second coming of Christ, if you view it as the end of the physical world, a cataclysmic, earth-burning, total destruction of life as you know it, you're going to miss what the Lord is saying in this chapter. Because it's not going to fit your paradigm. All right, Because life goes on, you can't believe that Yeshua returned as He said He would in the first century. It just won't fit your paradigm. So let's begin by looking at a verse that I think really shatters the paradigm that views the second coming as the end of the world. And that's how most people see the second coming. He comes and the world ends. And we start, go to heaven and start over. He does the earth over, however your view of it is. And we start all over. All right, let's let's uh, let's look at some verses. Let's set a context first. 2 Thessalonians. Now, this book was written to who? It's not a trick question. The Thessalonians, okay? These were real people that lived in the first century. All right, he's not writing to us today. He's writing to the Thessalonians that were there in the 1st century. Watch what he tells them. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So writing to these 1st century believers in Thessalonica, he tells them he's encouraging them about their persecutions, the afflictions they are suffering for their faith. All right? So Paul comforts them by saying this, in verse 6-8, through eight, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Alright, so see what he's saying? Listen, God is a just God and He's going to repay those people that are afflicting you. Now watch. And He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So he's going to repay those who are afflicting. He's going to give you relief. You Thessalonians, you're going to get relief, as well as us. When is this relief going to come? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. So when do they get relief? When the Lord returns. Which most people believe the Lord hasn't returned yet, so when do the Thessalonians get relief? They don't. It's a false hope He offered them. If the the coming of the Lord still hasn't come, these guys are dust now. Okay, they're gone. But He promised them, I'm going to give you relief. Alright? And again, you've got to remember, this was written to the first century suffering, suffering believers in Thessalonica promising them relief at the second coming. If it's still future, they got no relief. Now, Paul goes on to say this, chapter 2, 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua, okay, same idea, just talked about the coming of the Lord, he's going on, same topic, coming of the Lord, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, he's continuing this subject continuing of the second, the subject, coming. Of the second subject, coming, and the complete the Jewish Bible, Bible puts it Jewish this way, which I think is this way, verse two. 2. He says, not he to says, be easily not shaken. To be shaken. The Thessalonians are shaken. Shaken, shaken in their thinking, shaken, in their thinking, they're they're thinking anxious because anxious a spirit thinking, or a message or a letter had come to them, claiming that the day of the Lord had already come. happened. second coming already happened. They're hearing. They're hearing, And so they're upset about it, so Paul's right. Don't be, about writing, about modeling, don't, be don't be upset listen, about that people, don't be think now you listen people think with it. me if, no if, mean, views, if the Thessalonians believe that the nature of the second the coming of the second the was an earth burning total destruction of the planet how could they be deceived by the how could they be if the second coming was as many view it today total redoing of the earth you know everything's different Paul would have said to them, Guys, look out the window. Look out the window. How can you, you be w- deceived about the coming of the Lord? Just look out the window. Everything's, going on, the window. Like it always Everything's going on just like, the window. like it, it always has. Like he doesn't it do that. that. He doesn't do that. See, they thought do it had already he happened. So they must have viewed it differently than most folks today do. They must have seen it in some sense spiritual because they don't see and it didn't happen. Now, would you agree with that? Would you agree that he's saying it, you know, it hasn't happened yet. They had to view it differently than most folks do today. Okay? Can I get you to agree? Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Here's the thing if you can allow a crack in this earth ending second coming paradigm, then I think you can begin to understand what the Bible really says about the second coming. Now let's see if we can understand the disciples' question, and then we'll be able to understand. Yeshua's answer to them. Correctly understanding this question could cause a paradigm shift in your eschatological view. All right. Let me briefly remind you of what we saw last time. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Yeshua, in teaching the Jews, he's dealing, he's in Jerusalem, he's dealing with Jews, he is constantly warning them about coming judgment because of their apostasy. They had walked away from God. All right. In the second temple period, the whole thing was a sham. Okay? You know what was in the Holy of Holies? Nothing. Nothing. There was was an empty room because the ark had been taken. God had left in Ezekiel 11. It says the glory departed from the temple. God left. Well, guess what? The glory came back in the person of Christ. And they rejected that glory. Okay? They didn't want that. He wasn't who they wanted. And I believe that most all, if not all, Yeshua's parables deal with the kingdom of God or the destruction of Jerusalem because of the rejection of that kingdom. And as we move closer to chapter 24, we notice the building of this theme of judgment. He is warning them, if you reject me, judgment is going to come. He tells them in Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The you here is not you, none of you. He's talking to people there in the first century, the Jews. The kingdom will be taken from you and given to people producing fruits. He says in 22, verse 7, the king was angry. He's telling a parable. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned up their city. He's warning them of the coming judgment. People, this happened to Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Romans came in, destroyed, burned a city, killed the people, took the rest into slavery. This happened. This is history, and this is the warning of it. Look at 23, 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you are not willing. See, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, by house here, he's referring to Jerusalem. And certainly, the temple is included here. The word desolate is the Greek word eramos, and it means waste, desert, desolate, solitary, wilderness. The city and the temple, as I said, were both destroyed. Within 40 years of this prophecy, flattened, gone, done. Within a generation, it happened. Now, with this in mind, this warning of the constant judgment, we move into chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse of Yeshua. In verse 1, it says, as they depart from the temple, the words of Yeshua would be ringing in their minds. He said, your house will be left to you desolate. And then they point out the temple to him, and he says, all these things are they'll be thrown down. This massive structure is going to be utterly destroyed in the judgment of God. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so they leave the temple, they go through the valley, they go up to the Mount of Olives. It was just east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. Here's a kind of a, maybe a goofy picture, but the best I could find. Okay, This is Jerusalem here on the right. You see the valley, Kidron Valley, and up to the mountain. They would be sitting on top of this mountain up here. It was about a mile in length, about 700 feet height, and it overlooks Jerusalem. So this is from this summit, almost every, every part of the city is visible. So Yeshua and the disciples are sitting there, and he's teaching them about the city. From Jerusalem, the Scriptures tell us the Mount of Olives was a Sabbath day's journey. We see that in Acts 1.12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. How far is a Sabbath day's journey? (laughs) Well, it was as far as the law allowed you to travel on the Sabbath. Now, not the Mosaic law, not God's law, but the advanced, the Jewish law they had come up with. See, God gave laws. Six hundred thirteen of them, I have to be precise, in the Old Covenant. But that wasn't enough for them. So they added other laws to make sure you didn't break those laws. They just kept adding more and more and more, you know, so we don't get too close to breaking it. So they had this. They were allowed 2,000 paces or cubits, which would not quite be a mile. That's how you could travel. So this walk uphill in sandals would probably take them 15 to 30 minutes to leave Jerusalem, get up to the mountain. Now, during this time, they're no doubt thinking about what the Lord had just told them. About the temple, about its destruction, I'll be left desolate. Once Yeshua sits down on the mountain, the disciples approach him and question him about what he just said, all right? According to Mark 13, 3, the questions were asked by Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Matthew and Mark say they came privately. Now in both Matthew and Mark, this is used to set the disciples apart from the crowds, not from one another. All right, I think that this means they were the ones who raised the questions, not that they were the only ones present. So all the disciples are there, they're gathered around, and I, and I think that includes more than the twelve even, alright? There's the disciples, there was always a group that followed the Lord around, and they're there. And their question is twofold. First they ask, when will these things be? All three of the synoptic gospels ask when. So he says, they say in Matthew 24, 3, tell us when will these things be? Mark 13:4. tell us when will these things be? And Luke 21, 7, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? Now, Mark 13 and Luke 21 are all dealing with the same Olivet Discourse of the Lord as Matthew 24. So they're parallel passages. Now, these things here refers to the temple's destruction in verse 2. In verse 1, the disciples point out the temple building to Yeshua. In verse 2, he says, all these things will be destroyed. There won't be one stone left upon another. And it should be clear that they're asking, when? When is the temple going to be destroyed? That's their question. When will our house be left desolate? After all, Yeshua just said about judgment on Jerusalem and then about not one stone being left upon another, the disciples' question is when? Does that make sense? He tells them (laughs) that your place of worship, your city is going to be destroyed. And they're like, when? When? When's this going to... I mean, that would be a logical question. I want to know when's it going to happen, okay? It's the second part of the question where things get a little sticky. second part of the question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He says, Mark 13, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Luke And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, when you compare all three accounts, it shows that the disciples considered, now think about this, they considered his coming, the second coming, the end of the age, to be identical events with the destruction of the temple. These things all happen synchronous, okay? The temple's destroyed, coming of the Lord, the end of the age, they all go together. Look at uh, Mark 13, 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When will these things be? Referring to the temple's destruction. Then the second half, he asked, and what's going to be the sign? How are we going to know that this is happening? The sign of his coming in the end of the age were the same as these things, which referred to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And like I said, this happened, A.D. 70. These are not separate questions that can be divided up into different times. The disciples had one thing and only one thing on their mind, and that was he had just told them, your temple's going to be destroyed. That's the center of religion for them. Without that temple, they have nothing. That was the house of God. That's where God dwelt. Now, with the destruction of the temple, they connected the coming of Messiah and the end of the age. Now listen to what some have done to the disciples' question. Ryrie says this. In this discourse, Jesus answered two of the three questions the disciples asked. So he sees that they asked three different questions. He does not answer when will these things happen. He answers what will be the sign of your coming. So the most important thing on their mind was when. And the Lord doesn't even answer it according to Ryrie. He just ignores them, I guess. When will these things happen? He doesn't answer that. All right? John Walvoord writes this, Matthew's gospel does not answer the first question, which relates to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So he connects that. So their main question is when? And Ryrie and Walvoord say the Lord doesn't answer them. He ignores their question about the destruction of the temple. Listen, this is significant here, people. They're asking, when's this happen? He ignores that, and he proceeds to talk about some future distant end of the world thousands of years away they'd be like scratching their heads like, we didn't ask that. We're talking about our temple. When's this going to happen? I mean, that wouldn't have made any sense to them. He's talking to them about their temple. But yet, Ryrie and Walbert say, well, this is thousands of years off from them. It's been 2,000 years so far. They associated the destruction of the temple with his coming. Matthew 24, they said, When? When will these things when will be that? what will be the sign of your coming now the greek word for coming here is parousia which means arrival not return you think of, we think of the second coming as the return of christ they didn't think of it that way all right the disciples couldn't have been asking about a future return of christ you know why they had no clue he was leaving why would they ask when are you coming again Because they didn't, to them, he's not going anywhere. They believed that Yeshua was the promised Messiah. Alright, they did believe that. Look at Matthew 16, 15, and 16. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. It's Messiah. The Son of the living God. You know, Yeshua's last name is not Christ, okay? Christ means Messiah. All right. They believed Messiah would come and rule. They had no idea of Him coming and then leaving and then coming back again. Look at John 12, 34. So the crowd answered Him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. They didn't think He was going anywhere. So Yeshua talked to them about His death. He talked to them about going to the Father. And they're scratching their heads like, What is He talking about? Look at John 13, Little children... Yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. Now, think about how the disciples might have felt then, okay? They'd given up their lives. They, they left their families. They left their vocations. They left everything to follow this rabbi. And now he says, I'm going and you can't follow me. That would have been a little bit devastating to them, right? Well, he goes on in John 13, 34-36, and he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I love you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. <laughs> how do people know we're disciples of Christ? By our love. That's how they know. It doesn't say by how much Scripture you can quote. How much theology you know. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Well, Simon Peter said to him, he's talking about love, and Peter goes, Lord, um, where are you going? It's like he misses the whole thing about love because he's so hung up on what the Lord said about where I'm going and where I'm going, you can't come. So he misses it and he just jumps in. Lord, where are you going? He goes on in chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, and say, a little while and you'll see me no longer. Again, a little while and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while, and you'll see me, and again a little while, and you'll see me again? Because I'm going to the Father. See, this account in John here takes place after the Olivet Discourse. And they still didn't understand he was leaving them. Now, after the crucifixion, they didn't understand he was rising from the dead. He told them. They didn't get it. They're absolutely clueless at this point. He's dead, and they're just totally Look at John 20, 8 and 9. This is at the tomb of the Lord after the crucifixion. The other disciple, that's John, John Eliezer, Lazarus, who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't get it. Now let me ask you a question. If they had no idea that Yeshua was going to leave them, why would they ask about his return? They, they wouldn't. They didn't understand anything about a second coming. Then you say, well, why did they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? If they didn't think it was leaving, why would they ask, when are you coming? Good question, right? The answer is the Jewish concept of the parousia. What does parousia mean? As I said, the word meant arrival or presence and not return. It didn't refer to any future return of Christ. To the disciples, the parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship, His glorious appearing in power. William Barclay. And, you know, because I quote him doesn't mean I like him. Barclay is a very good historian, okay? But he's a liberal, okay? So you got to be careful. He's good at history. He's good at Jewish facts, but he didn't believe in any of the miracles of the Lord. All right. When the Lord walked on the water, he says, Barclay quote says, There was exceptionally dense lily pads in the area. Okay. So that's that's Barclay. But anyway, like I said, he's a good historian. He says this it is the regular word, speaking of parsee it's the regular word for arrival of a governor into his province or the coming of a king to his subjects it regularly describes a coming in authority and power. Okay? So that's what it's all about. It's When they're asking about His coming, they're talking, when are you going to display your power? When are you going to show them who you are? They were accustomed to hearing Yeshua speak of His coming in His kingdom, coming in glory, coming in power. And they expected this in their lifetime. <coughs> Look at Matthew 16, 27, 28. For the Son of Man is going to come, with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, who's the you here? It's the crowd He is speaking to in the first century. It's not us. He's talking to real, literal people in the first century. I say to you, you disciples, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, they didn't know he was leaving, but they looked for a time when he would appear in full glory and power, bringing in the kingdom and rewarding every man. Now, some read these verses and they try to explain them as relating to the transfiguration or tran- you know, referring to Pentecost, but this verse says it would be a time when every man would be rewarded for his works. That didn't happen at Pentecost. That didn't happen the transfiguration. So it can't refer to those. But it can refer to the second coming. That's what, he's, that's what he's talking about here. All right, his coming. He says, some of you are going to be alive when I come. You'll still be alive. Let's compare these two verses. Matthew 16, 27, Revelation 12, 12. He says in Matthew, the Son of Man is going to come. It's, a, it's mellow. He's about to come. About to, all right? And Revelation, which I don't think anybody questions, is talking about the second coming. Behold, I'm coming soon. Oh, who did you say that to? The seven churches, listen, in Asia Minor. People get so bent out of shape about Revelation, and all you got to do is ask them, who is that written to? They're like, uh, us? Really? Really, have you read the book? Because it tells who it's written to. Okay? He says, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and he names the seven churches. So he's writing to them in the first century. And he tells them in the first century, I'm coming soon. And yet believers today are still looking for a soon coming. That takes the word soon and makes it mean absolutely nothing. If it was soon 2,000 years ago and it's soon today, you know it doesn't mean anything. He goes on in Matthew to say he's going to repay each person when he comes. Well, Revelation, he says, he's going to repay each one at the second coming. Then he says, according to what he has done. And a revelation for what he has done. So this is definitely talking about the second coming. They knew that his parousia would be in their lifetime. Listen, they understood that. And they looked for and expected it. Even after his resurrection, they questioned him about restoring the kingdom. Is it now? When are you going to do it? You know, We know it's soon here. Look at Acts 1, 6, and 7. And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do we get it now? We know you're going to be the Messiah and set up a kingdom and it's all going to be. They didn't understand that Christ would sit upon the throne by means of resurrection and ascension. Look at Acts 2.29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Christ is going to be resurrected to sit on that throne. That's what he is talking about. He says, And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Yeshua God raised up, and of, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted At the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now you might ask, why would the disciples connect the destruction of the temple with Christ's parousia? With him revealing his power and glory. Why would they do that? Because they knew the Bible. Right? They knew their Bible. They knew the Tanakh, which we call the Old Testament. And man, I hate that, you know, because if you think something's old, you don't really need it. Be- believers, you need it, okay? And there's, I don't know if you heard of the controversy that's going on right now. Kind of started with um, Stanley, Andy Stanley. But he is talking that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity. Okay? People, if you unhitch the Old Testament, you don't have Christianity, okay? Because you start out in the very beginning of Matthew and you got a genealogy about all these people and you're who are these people? What do they have to do with anything? And you lose all the prophecies about the coming of Christ. All, you, you just lose so much, people. We have Listen, the Bible's one book, You don't unhitch hitch the Old Testament. You learn it, okay? Because it teaches us about the New. Okay, that was extra. I won't charge you for that. All right? The disciples knew their Tanakh, though. They knew it. And they knew the destruction of Jerusalem would usher in Messiah's kingdom. When he destroyed that city, he would set up his kingdom. Let's go back to Zechariah. I'm sure you all have this text memorized, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. All right? Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. All right, the city, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And the city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped, half the city shall go out of exile, the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. All right, listen, people, this is history. This happened again in 8070. The city was devastated. Let's go on. Then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east by west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azael, And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then, Yahweh my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So again, here we see that Jerusalem's destruction is tied with the coming, with the parousia of the Lord. We also see this in Daniel 9.26. After the sixty-two weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we got the coming, we got a destruction of the city. The disciples believed that the coming of Messiah would be simultaneous with the destruction of the city and the temple. And that literally was the sign of his coming. And you know, people have a hard time wrapping their head around that. We'll go back to Isaiah 19. And read Isaiah 19 because the Lord says, "I'm coming on the clouds in judgment." And the idea of coming in the clouds is a judgment coming, all right? And he comes in the clouds, and it's not that he's visibly present, but he's seen in the destruction, and he uses a foreign army to do it. And that's what happens here, that he uses a Roman army to go in and destroy the city. Now, notice that they associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age, all right? Matthew 24:3. He says, the coming and the end of the age. Mark 13.4 says, all these things about to be accomplished. And again, Luke 21.7 says, when these things are about to take place. Now again, these things is the destruction of the temple. And they're connected with the end of the age. Now, some translations render this world. And if you got the King James, it says world, the end of the world. That's why people have bad theology, because we have bad Bible translations, okay? What do you think the end of the world is? It's gone. You know, The world's gone. Your world ends at the end of the world, okay? But see, that's not what even what it says. But you would expect that from the King James. But what about the modern literal version of 2019? The end of the world. I'm like, that's horrible. How can you be a modern translation... And translate it that way. See, that's confusing. The Greek word here for world is ion. And ion means age. An age can end, right? Another age takes over. All right? It's not the end of the world. It's not the Greek word cosmos or okumeni, which mean world and its inhabitants. He's not talking about the end of the physical world. The word ion means age, era, period of time. The expression end of the age refers, (coughs) please get this, the end of the Jewish age, the end of the old covenant age. The disciples knew that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the city meant the end of the old covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. How'd they know that? All their worship surrounded the temple. If the temple's destroyed, what do they do? Well, see, this is what really... I mean, God said, I'm done with Judaism. Boom. The temple's destroyed. No more sacrifices. No more priesthood. No more lineage. You can't be a priest if you can't prove your lineage. No more priests because the lineage... Everything's destroyed in the destruction. But what happens? Judaism goes on, right? They reinvented it. All the feasts are different because every feast had tons of sacrifices. Everything's different because they haven't sacrificed an animal since AD 70. And that was the main thing Pointing to Christ. But they just went on. But God was saying, I'm done. It's done. We're shutting it down. That old system is done. We're starting again. And the disciples knew that. William Barclay says this Time was divided by the Jews into two great periods this present age and the age to come. All right. That's really important that you grasp that. All right. The present age is wholly bad and beyond all human hope of reformation. It can be mended only by direct intervention of God. When God does intervene, the golden age, the age to come will arrive. But in between the two ages, there will come the day of the Lord, which will bring a time of terrible and fearful upheaval like the birth pains of a new age. Now remember Zechariah 14? The day of the Lord and the destruction of Jerusalem were connected. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Matthew 23, says this about verse 3, The very form of the question is cast, the juxtaposition of the clause seems to indicate that as these men interpret the Master's words, Jerusalem's fall, particularly the destruction of the temple, would mean the end of the world. In this opinion, they were partly mistaken. So he says, oh, they they got it, but they were mistaken. As Jesus is about to show, a lengthy period of time would intervene between Jerusalem's fall and the culmination of the age, the second coming. (laughs) All right, listen. He sees that by the form of the question, they viewed the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the age simultaneously. That's how they saw it. He says that. But he says they were wrong. They're mistaken. If they're mistaken... Why didn't the Lord say, wait a second, you guys are getting this wrong. These are different events. Okay? When and what I'm coming and this and that. You know, the second coming is different from the fall of Jerusalem, from the end of the age. No, he didn't correct them. He said the temple's going to be destroyed soon, and the end of the age is a long way off. No! They're together. They're all going to be fulfilled. Listen, this is what the Lord told him. Remember the question, when? He says, in your lifetime. We saw that in Matthew 16, but look at Matthew 24, 34. We'll jump ahead in Matthew. We'll get to this eventually. Truly I say to you, oh, there we go again. Who's he talking to? You always got to find out who the you is. Because you know what we do when we read the Bible and it says you? We think, that's me. He's writing to me. The Lord sat down and wrote you a personal letter. Except the problem is you're not a Thessalonian. You're not an Ephesian. You're not a Galatian. You're not in the church of Ephesus. He's writing to real people, and first of all, you have to understand what did it mean to them before you can understand what it meant to you. We're reading somebody else's mail, and we're getting all excited about it. Yay! Coming soon. No. Truly, I say to you, you you people that I'm talking to right here, right now, you, the disciples, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All the things I've been telling you are going to happen, they're going to happen in this generation. Now, if you look at the way the Lord used the word generation, I think it's abundantly clear he's talking about contemporaries, the Jewish people of his own period. Yeshua here very plainly, very clearly tells his disciples that all of the things he mentioned, the destruction of the temple, Parsia, end of the age, would come in their generation. It's so clear that people get frustrated about it. They try to change the actual Greek words here to make them say something they don't say. Because most commentators will agree that generation means generation everywhere except here. That refutes itself, I think. Okay? Listen, Yeshua here uses the near demonstrative. This generation. If I said to you, that building's getting destroyed next week, what am I talking about? You don't have a clue because you don't know context. What building? But if I said to you, this building's being destroyed next week, what am I talking about? This building, the one you, you would say, what building? I would say, here's your sign. This building, the one we're in, okay? And that's what he's saying. This generation, the one I'm talking to, every time this is used in the New Testament, this, it refers to something that's near in terms of time or distance. He doesn't say that generation referring to something far off. This generation. Now, we saw earlier from Barclay's quote that the Jews, to them, time was divided into two great periods, Mosaic Age, Messianic Age. The Messiah Messiah was viewed as the one who would bring in a new world, and the period of the Messiah was therefore correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come, meaning the age to come. All through the New Testament, people, here's something, let me alert you to this, and then you'll see it from now on, okay? All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. And here's the problem. We read the Bible, it says, this age. <laughs> and what age do we think it's talking about? This one. This age. Oh, that, that means the one we're living in. Again, it's written 2,000 years ago. to people in that age, this age and the one to come. The understanding of these two ages and when they change is fundamental to interpreting the Bible. Listen, you're going to miss a lot of understanding Scripture if you don't understand the different ages. Because you're not going to know what time it is. And if you don't know what time it is, you don't know where you are, you don't get what's going on here, alright? Most Christians believe that most of all the New Testament prophecies deal with a time future to us. And when they read in the New Testament the words, the age to come... They think of an age future to us, because it's to come. But the New Testament writers were referring to the age we now live in, the Christian age. We live in what was to them the age to come, the new covenant age. Let me show you a few scriptures that talk about these two ages. Matthew 12, 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, the word come at the end of this verse is the Greek word mellow, and it means about to, the age about to come. In the first century, okay, that's when it was written. Now, many think that the age to come is going to be a sinless age. You know, today people look for the future coming. When the Lord comes, it will be a sinless age. Not according to this verse. Sin against the Holy Spirit is not forgiven in that age. Referring to the age of the new covenant, or our present age. Look at Matthew 13, 49-50. So it will be at the end of the age. End of our age? No, end of their age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is this a reverse rapture? Because here the evil are taken, not the righteous. The evil are taken and they're thrown into the furnace of fire. This furnace of fire, speaking of the fiery destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, it was a national judgment. It was the end of the Jewish age. The wicked Jews were burned up in that destruction because the Lord told the believers, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what do you do? Flee to the mountains. Why? Jerusalem's a fortress. Wouldn't it be smart to run to the fortress and be safe? No, because that fortress is going down. So he said, flee to the mountains. Get out of there. And that city was destroyed and burned. All right? Look at 1 Corinthians. This is an interesting passage. 2 6 through 8. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. So we got wisdom, we got rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who are these rulers? Most people would say, well, they're Jewish rulers, they're the Jewish leaders. That's possible, but I really think the reference here is to the watchers, the spiritual rulers, the anti-Yahweh forces. All right. In the Greek translation of Daniel, a text that many scholars consider even older than the Septuagint, um, they use the Prince of Persia and Israel's Prince Michael are both described with the Greek word archon, and that's the term that Paul uses here for the rulers, the archon. All right. So I think what he's talking about here when he says the rulers of this age, they are the anti-Yahweh forces, the watchers who are trying to disrupt the plan of God. They want to stop God's redemption. And they, they launched this plan back in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God left heaven and intermarried with women to try to corrupt the messianic line. And that didn't work. All right, So they kept trying to stop this thing. They want to stop the Lord from redeeming mankind. And it says, look at what it says, they would, if they understood, if these rulers, if these watchers understood the plan of God, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord. Why? Because the crucifixion was His plan. See, they thought, oh, we're going to mess up the plan, we're going to kill the Messiah. And they didn't know that was the plan. All right? Because now our sins are paid for. The wisdom and rulers of that age were coming to nothing because the age was passing away. He's speaking of the spiritual archon, which were about to be judged at the end of the old covenant system. See, God was going to judge not only Jerusalem; He was going to judge the spiritual, because there was a spiritual battle going on in the heavens. Revelation 12 talks about that. Psalm 82 talks about the judgment of these gods because of their corruptness, and these rulers are shortly going to have no rule, no realm to rule in, because they're going to. The old covenant system is about to end. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul very plainly says the end of the ages were coming on the first century saints. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? All through the Old Covenant, God speaking through the prophets. Now watch what he says, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Ask a Christian, when are the last days? You know what they'll tell you? We're living in the last days. Wow, that's a long last days. Because it started with Christ. He, in the last days, He spoke to us by His Son. So the Lord showed up in the last days. Listen, the last days of the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9.26 for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. When was it that Yeshua appeared? He appeared not at the beginning, but at the end of the ages. Listen, to suppose that he meant that Yeshua's incarnation came at the end of the world would be to make the statement false. That would... The world has already lasted longer since the Incarnation than the whole duration of the Mosaic economy. From the Exodus to the destruction of the Temple, Yeshua was manifest at the end of the Jewish age. Peter says the same thing. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for your sake. He came during the last days of the age that was the Old Covenant age, the Jewish age. That age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Listen, all things prophesied by Yeshua in Matthew 24 occurred at the end of the age. Nothing is taught in the Bible about a millennial age. The Bible speaks of this age, Old Covenant, and the age to come, New Covenant. The millennium was the time of transition between the two ages. There was a 40-year period of transition. When the new started, the old was still in effect, but was fading away. At 80, 70, the old was done, the new was fully consummated. You and I live in what to the writers of the New Testament called the age to come. And it's so, you know, we get so tripped up when we read the age to come and we're thinking, oh, I can't wait for that age. You're in it, so you don't have to wait for anything, all right? We're no longer in the old covenant. And see, most people realize that, right? Yeah, when's the last time you sacrificed a bull? You don't do that. Why? Because the old covenant's gone, right? But yet we still hang on to vestiges of it. And one thing preachers love to hang on to from that old covenant is what? Tithing. Tithing. You better tithe or, you know, and they'll go to Malachi. You're a God robber, okay? And you're going to get in trouble. And it sounds so good and it makes people feel guilty and makes them want to give their money. Listen, we're in the new covenant. What is the standard of giving in the new covenant? Give as you've been blessed. That's what he said. Give as you've been blessed. Give freely. Give what you want. Listen, giving was always free will. Giving was always free will. Tithing was taxation. Oh, don't you love that word? Tax. Listen, taxation, tithing under the old covenant was 23 and a third percent. That's how much you had to give. So if you want to talk about tithing, let's get it right. you got to start giving 23 and a third, Okay. It's ten percent stuff. That's cheap. All right, let's give it. Let's give like you should give. All right, but you know that, and they hang on to that because it sounds so good. But the Bible says, "Listen, as you've been blessed, give freely." That's what the Lord wants, freely. We're no longer under the old covenant. We live under the messianic age of the new covenant. The age we live in, listen, people, will never end. There is no end times of Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is an everlasting covenant. And if you have an everlasting covenant, it doesn't have last days. It doesn't have end times. Look at Hebrews 13.20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Yeshua, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant... The Bible doesn't teach about an age future to us. The age in which we live is the everlasting age of the new covenant. Yeshua's disciples believed that His presence would be acknowledged, and so would the end of the age when He arrived in judgment on Jerusalem. They were thinking of the temple and the immediate future. Would He speak to them about the world and the indefinite, really remote future? That that doesn't make any sense. They're concerned with their lives. With their temple, with their surrounding. Do, you, do any of you care what happens in 2,000 years? Why would you? I'm like, I'm not going to be around. You know? I, I, don't, I might not be around. I might, okay? But I don't really think I will be. All right. F.C. Cook in his commentary says this From the form of the question, we may infer that two separate events, the destruction of the temple, and the final coming of Christ at the end of the world were closely connected together in the minds of the disciples. Yep, we could do that, all right? The popular belief of the Jews at the time seems to have been that the coming of Messiah would be simultaneous with the destruction of the city and the temple. So Cook sees them as two separate events, but he admits the disciples didn't. They connected him. I think he sees them as two separate events because this paradigm Blinds him. So we have seen the disciples' question all revolved around the temple and its destruction. They connected everything to that. The end of the age is connected to that. coming of Messiah is connected to that. Tell us, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? To them, the destruction of the temple would mean the parasy of the Lord, the end of the Jewish age, the answer that Yeshua gives is to them, because they asked the question. It's not to us, all right? It's not to some future generation. It all deals with the fall of Jerusalem. People, if we wouldn't have, if the church wouldn't have gotten so far off track a long time ago, I think this would be easy to understand. Just understand that the Bible is not written to you. It is written for you, okay? Timothy says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's profitable with doctrine reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be perfect. So the Word of God teaches us, but it's none of it's written to the saints at Chesapeake or saints at, at Virginia Beach, Virginia. Why? Because the canon was closed 2,000 years ago. It was written to them. And we understand that, then we can understand what is being said. But most people read the Bible like it's a newspaper. Just flo- showed up at the doorstep today. Cool, look at the Lord's coming soon, honey. Pack our bags. And that's where most of the church is at today. You know, it's soon. And I'm like, you know, he told people 2,000 years ago it was soon. All right, now keep all this in mind as we look at Yeshua's answer to their question in some future study here, okay? Uh But we're going to get into that. The next thing we're going to get into the Lord's answer to their question. So keep that in mind. It's all about the temple. They're talking about the temple. When will it be destroyed? When the temple's destroyed, you come. And that listen, we know historically the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And what's interesting is some of the local writers, Tacitus, Josephus, talk about when that temple was actually destroyed by the Romans, they saw signs in the heavens. They saw chariots of God. They saw fight. They saw the spiritual battle going on. These are not Christians, these are historical writers who were pagans. Tacitus wasn't a Christian, he was a Roman. Josephus wasn't a Christian. They're talking about what they saw during this time. And that's Revelation 12. There was a battle in heaven. And the battle was ended in AD 70 when God destroyed the anti-Yahweh forces, these watchers. He destroyed Jerusalem. He's put an end to the old covenant and issued in the new covenant. And that's where we live, people. The everlasting covenant. And you know what's exciting? We're not looking forward to anything because we've got all the promises of God right here, right now. And I think one of the saddest things is that people are looking forward to something that they already have. Man, I can't wait. Won't it be cool when the Lord comes? Yeah, it will be. And he did. And we have him present with us right now. Because, see, the promise of the new covenant was God said, I'll dwell with you. So is he with us now or not? He's with us. The new covenant is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd give us the heart of Bereans That we would not accept this. We would not reject this. We would study the Scripture to see if these things are so. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Help us, Lord, to understand Your Word for what it says that we might honor You for who You are. We love You, Lord. Thank You for Your patience with us. Teach us, Father, from Your Word. Amen. Amen.